The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today it is quite an honor and my delight to welcome Michelle Simon. Michelle is a public health lawyer who has been researching and writing about the food industry and food politics since 1996. She is the author of Appetite for Profit, How the Food Industry Undermines Our Health and How to Fight Back, and she is also the president of Eat Drink Politics, an industry watchdog consulting firm. She has a master's degree in public health from Yale University, and she received her law degree from the University of California, Hastings College of the Law. She is most recently the author of what I think is the most important report to come out, a 28-page report titled Food Stamps, Follow the Money, Are Corporations Profiting from Hungry Americans? Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. We're on the heels of so many important things historically. We've recently got a new report out from the Institute of Medicine looking at obesity and how it's bankrupting our nation. It promises to leave the younger generation sicker than its parents with a shorter lifespan than their parents. We are looking at the farm bill right now and severe budget cuts. And as long as the Senate version holds, at least, we're looking at some budget cuts to the tune of about $4 billion to food stamps. So your report could not be more timely. Why did you write this report? Well, I wanted to take a look specifically at the farm bill. That's where I started my inquiry. And then when I took a closer look at how the farm bill breaks out, I was surprised to find that really three-quarters of the farm bill budget goes to food assistance. And we tend to think of the farm bill more about commodity crops and subsidies, and that's certainly an important part of that legislation. But when I realized how much money was going to food assistance, and particularly the food stamp program, I really realized we're missing kind of this much bigger chunk of what's going on with that particular bill. And then it just kind of took off from there, particularly with the controversy around potentially limiting how food stamps are purchased, or rather the foods that are used with food stamps. So I realized that no one was really taking a closer look at how the food industry benefits from this huge program, and it's grown in recent years to over $70 billion a year. So it was really trying to shine a light in a place that that hadn't been before. You're absolutely right. Most people do not understand that the farm bill, the largest chunk of our tax dollars that goes into the farm bill actually goes to food stamps now, and we call them now SNAP, right, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So we can interchange those words and our listeners will understand. But we've all been in the grocery store and we've heard the comments about what people are buying with their food stamps. And gosh darn if they aren't buying junk food, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to ask, well, if food stamps and the food stamp program, SNAP, if that program was designed to improve the nutritional status of low-income Americans, 
what the heck are we doing allowing food stamps to purchase products that are clearly identified in our U.S. national dietary guidelines as foods not to eat so much of? Right. Right. Well, we sort of forgot about the end in the SNAP program, and I think there are different reasons for that. You know, over time, different types of welfare benefits have been eroded, and I think advocates have sort of turned to the SNAP program as a way to be that kind of fail-safe catch-all mechanism for just straight-up cash benefits because it's true that there aren't a lot of other programs left for that. And unfortunately, that's not really what the food stamp program was ever meant to be, just a cash welfare program. It was really designed to do two things. One, to help farmers with excess product, and then two, you know, be able to apply that excess product for people who really needed it. So it's interesting if you look historically the program was never meant to be as broad as it as it is now. It was actually very limited in its early years to actual farm products, right, that farmers grow. And if you look, there are some interesting ways that that's even described. Like it would, the list would change week to week about what would, what people could buy based on what was just excess product in the marketplace. And yet now, of course, it's gone so far from that original vision. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting. You pulled out that in 1964, Congress took up the issue of whether soda could be purchased with food stamps. And I just want to let our listeners know that one of the most effective ways to lose weight and to curtail this national obesity epidemic is to remove sweetened beverages from the diet. I always tell people, if you want to gain weight, watch more TV and drink more soda and eat more fast food. That's sort of the recipe for weight gain. And so in 1964, the Illinois Senator Paul Douglas made the point, he said, I do not want to include Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola or any of that family. He says, I like them myself, but I do not believe they should be permitted to be substitutes for milk or any other nutritious food product, I might add here. So we've been having this debate about what food stamps can purchase for a long time. My personal opinion, of course, as someone who's dedicated her career to public health, would be that we have no business spending tax dollars on supporting or lining the pockets of corporations that further harm our nation's health. And I sense that you might feel the same way. Right. Yeah, it it was interesting looking at that history. And also what Senator Douglas noted was how allowing junk food and soda to be purchased with food stamp dollars were actually creating vulnerability for the program from the conservative side. Right. right? And that's exactly what's happened. And that's really the irony, that the same groups that sort of fight for so-called choice for uh, people who are on food stamps to be able to eat and drink whatever they want, seem to be missing the fact that people from all sides of the political equation are looking at this program saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why are we using tax dollars to supplement these unhealthy purchases in a time when people are suffering from chronic disease? And not to mention, of course, federal tax dollars also going to pay for the health care for all of that. And so, yes, of course it makes no sense for the federal government to, you know, first of all, we subsidize 
enough the commodity crops that go into our processed food supply. And now we're subsidizing, you know, so we subsidize the production. And now we're subsidizing the purchase of these products with these with this huge government program and then have to pay in part for the cleanup with healthcare dollars down the road. So it's really it's just insanity. I agree. Okay. Now, the other thing that I think is so interesting is how and why the hunger community who, you know, we would think that advocates for the hungry and the poor would be advocating for their optimal health. I don't understand why hunger advocacy groups are actually on the side of big food or the food industry saying, yes, if poor people want to buy soda, they should have that choice. But food stamps were never meant to be the be-all and end-all. I mean, if you want to buy soda, you can still buy soda on your own dime. But let's not line the pockets of the food industry with tax dollars. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's curious. I did take a hard look at the role of the the leading national anti-hunger groups on this issue. And, And you're right, they have all pretty much lined up opposed to the idea that food stamp participants should not be able to buy soda or other unhealthy foods or beverages. And I think there's there's a mix. I mean, to be fair, there are some individuals and groups even that have some real concerns about going down this road. I looked at all the arguments, and there are, for example, well, in some areas there isn't enough access to truly healthy food. I mean, that is a problem that we definitely need to address. That's right. It could be addressed by shifting the types of foods that even this program was emphasizing more. But unfortunately, the the bigger problem really is that many of these national groups are essentially bought out by the food industry. And, you know, I didn't get too much into it, but I do have a couple of tables that clearly show those connections. So, you know, you name your big food company, from Walmart to ConAgra to Mars Candy to PepsiCo to Hershey's to Coca-Cola, they're all huge donors of these national anti-hunger groups. And the groups will say things like, well, you know, we have to take their donations, and it's a sad state of affairs that these groups feel so compromised that they need to take money from these companies. And they will also say, and it doesn't compromise our policy positions. Well, that may or may not be true. And to me, the, you know, the fact that we have to even raise the question means that there's there's potential for conflict of interest, and it certainly doesn't look good to have these. You know, what happens is these coalitions form, and that's exactly what happened with the New York City attempted waiver request to USDA to just experiment with the idea to not allow soda purchases with food stamps. So the anti-hunger groups teamed up with Big Food to stop that from going forward, and they were successful. And that's exactly what's happening in a number of states around the country as well. So, you know, it just really doesn't look good. And those people in public health that are screaming about this and saying, this is a crazy idea to allow this practice to continue, it's just, to me, a really sad state of affairs that we should be on opposite sides on this issue when don't we all want what's best for people who truly need better nutrition. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that you've identified at least nine states who have proposed bills to make health-oriented improvements to SNAP, food stamps, but none have passed in part due to opposition from the food industry. And then you give some dollar values in terms of, well, how much are these companies spending? And I thought it was very curious. Coca-Cola spent an astonishing, your word, astonishing, and I agree, 
1.15 million just in the fourth quarter of last year. And you've got the chart here on page 10, if our listeners want to access the report, where you show exactly which organization, either a big food company or, or a group of them, like the American Beverage Association, for example, who they lobbied and what their different issues were. And then I also want to bring to our listeners' attention a part of this report that I thought was very interesting. I remember when this happened. It was when Yum! Brands failed attempt to expand food stamps for fast food. Again, one of those ways, if you want to gain weight, if you want to contribute to the national obesity epidemic, uh, fast food is a great way to do it. And there are wonderful public health reports showing that the more times you eat fast food, the more likely you are to gain weight. But here's something where in September of 2011, Yum! Brands, the owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken or KFC, Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, lobbied to expand food stamp benefits so that people could go into these fast food restaurants with their food stamps and purchase those foods. And then, interestingly, the executive director of the Congressional Hunger Center defended the move against critics, saying that fast food was better than going hungry and that he was solidly behind what Yum! is doing. And then food politics author and New York University professor Marion Nessel called this position a conflict of interest, asking, want to take a guess at who funds the Congressional Hunger Center? Yum! is listed as a sower, meaning that its annual gift is in the range of $10,000. She says, I'm guessing Yum! is delighted that it is getting such a good value at such a low cost. Yes, well, it was an interesting episode where there was a lot of press attention at the time for young brands and some other restaurant chains that thought, well, this is a great idea, right, to be able to use food stamps for fast food. And the good news is that USDA wasn't so interested in expanding the program. Now, there are a handful of states that allow food stamps to be used in restaurants, and Yum! wanted to to get more of those states on board. But they basically backed down from that because there was so much outcry about this. And I thought the Congressional Hunger Center really looked silly to be defending it. I mean, they, they could have stayed silent on it. And it is another example of where, you know, it's hard to to say that there was a no connection between the policy positions that groups like that take and the funding they're getting when it's so clear that they there could be a connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish we could all be in this together and be working for the better good, the common good for our children, and just keep that in mind. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Michelle Simon. She's a public health lawyer who has been researching and writing about the food industry and food politics since 1996, and she is the author of a brand-new report that is a must-read for anyone who cares where their tax dollars go. It's called Food Stamps, Follow the Money, Are Corporations Profiting from Hungry Americans? Michelle, do we know where the food stamps are going in the food system? How much, if we looked at the new guidelines, the MyPlate guidelines, could, do we know how many food stamp dollars are going to, say, to, to purchase milk or fruits and vegetables or, or candy and soda? No, unfortunately, it's really the big mystery. I guess you could call it the $72 billion question because that's how much money was spent in 2011 on SNAP expenditures. And it's really quite amazing. We probably have better information. Uh, one of my colleagues says we have better information about how much money we spent on bombs last year than we have on how we're feeding our kids. And it's really incredible. So the federal government does not collect data on where food stamp dollars go. So whether someone is purchasing a bottle of orange juice or a six-pack of 
Coca-Cola or apples versus gummy bears. The federal government has no clue. What they do collect is how much money each retailer, the expenditures for each retailer, because that's how the feds reimburse the retailers. So but what's interesting there is that while that data is federally available, uh, nobody seems to want to let it go, and it's not made public. And any attempt that folks have made to try and get at that data, how much does Walmart make, et cetera, the feds have, have said, no, 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 um, this is secret data. And there have been a couple of mistakes made, so I w- was able to track down data from the state of Massachusetts that was leaked out by mistake and also the state of Oklahoma. Some reporters there cleverly were able to get um, some data from the state the state health department in Oklahoma. And in that state, it turns out that half of all food stamp purchases are made at Walmart. And over just less than a two-year period, that amounted to $500 million. And so that's a lot of money going to Walmart in one state just in that short period of time. And that just gives us a glimpse into what's going on. And, And it also explains why a company like Walmart would want to fight so hard to maintain the status quo because they lobby just like the candy makers and the soda makers do around SNAP. So they like the fact that those you know federal dollars keep going into their coffers and, of course, don't want to see any restrictions at all. And um, the third player in all this is the banks. So we have the junk food makers, the retailers, and the banks play a big role because they help administer the program through the EBT cards, so the Electronic Benefit Transfer mechanism and we it's it's fine that this is a convenient method for people to be able to purchase products and it takes stigma away from the old days when they had to actually pull out stamps right. to make the purchases but the banks get a hefty cut of the action and again the actual amounts the banks make are not readily available at least not at the national level USDA doesn't bother to collect that either so what I did was uh, file several several Public Records Act requests in a handful of states to try and get at the contracts with with these banks and any data I could around exactly how much money they're making. But, you know, it was a tall order just to get that type of information. And the contracts are very different in each state. It turns out J.P. Morgan Chase has contracts in about half the states, so they're obviously a big player in all this. And they're making a lot more money as more and more people are on the rolls because they make money based on how many people are signed up on food stamps. So it's really very twisted when you start to really break it down that way. And Michelle, do you know how many Walmart employees depend on food stamps? Yeah, that's a question that a lot of us would like to know. I haven't seen any data about that specifically. We do know, and there was a good report that came out recently on food workers in general, and that they, as a, as a category, are on food stamps at a, at a greater rate than other workers. So, in other words, you know, the farm workers and the food service workers, they are paid so little that they have to make up the difference by relying on food stamps, which seems rather ironic. And we certainly know that Walmart is notorious for barely paying or not paying a living wage, barely paying minimum wage. And so, of course, there are going to be a number of Walmart employees who are also relying on food stamps. So a double irony there because, of course, that means the federal government is essentially subsidizing Walmart's low wages. And we know that many Walmart workers cash their checks and are turning right around and, you know, using their both their wages and their food stamps at Walmart. So it seems like a pretty good deal for that store. But meanwhile, not so much for the rest of us. Yeah, talk about corporate welfare, right? 
I want to also mention something that you pulled out that I found especially chilling, and that was that a journalist in Massachusetts was threatened for simply receiving data on how much money retailers made from SNAP dollars. Yeah, so this is um, a journalist that runs a site called Muckwalk, which actually allows people to easily file Freedom of Information Act requests, and he filed one himself with uh, the state of Massachusetts. He was curious about how much money the retailers were making off of SNAP, and not knowing any better, it seems, the, the powers that be at the appropriate agency in the state of Massachusetts turned over all the data that this journalist requested. And then being someone who wanted to share this data widely, he promptly posted it to the Muckrock website, and that's when the OSDA apparently got wind of it. And then through the state, basically cited the statute that says you're not, that no one's allowed to make this data public, and, it, and the statute actually carries um, threat of jail or fines. So, um, so it was reported as, you know, journalists threatened with jail time for just making some data public. Well, of course, you know, that threat wasn't carried out, and um, he certainly wasn't about to even take the data down, and so he, he didn't, and, and the threats went away. But that just shows you, like, the absurdity of this. You know, what is so secret? What what does everyone have to hide? I mean, why shouldn't Americans know exactly where their tax dollars are being spent and to what extent one retailer is making more money than another retailer? And let's, you know, talk about quality of, of diet and being able to evaluate to what extent nutrition is really being served by where this money goes. And, you know, these days there are a number of pilot projects on what are called incentive programs, the idea being, you know, if you offer someone $20 of uh, coupons, or rather $10 of coupons, they can spend $20 at the farmer's market or on fresh produce. And, right. you know, there's all kinds of these innovative programs going on, but we really can't get a good handle on how to evaluate them unless we have the bigger picture of how people are spending their food stamp dollars in general. And so there are many reasons we really need to have this data to be able to just effectively evaluate what's going on. And I think you bring up a wonderful point, and that is that many farmers markets are providing incentive programs for individuals who need food assistance. But, you know, uh, years ago I remember looking into how many farmers markets actually had the ability to take the electronic benefits transfers and unfortunately, we're woefully deficient nationally, so it puts local farmers at a disadvantage, too, because unless those market managers are diligent in getting those machines established, and it takes work and dedication on the market manager's standpoint, our low-income neighbors are further limited, so they may not have the the stigma of going into a supermarket with a coupon. They can go in with a card that looks like a, a credit card. But at the same time, they don't have the freedom in many places in the country of using their benefits at farmer's markets. So we need to expand those programs. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right that there are many barriers. And USDA recently announced a new pile of cash, but it was so small, I think something like $4 million to to do what you just said, to help farmers' markets with these electronic systems. And yet, you know, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to Walmart doesn't need to apply for a grant to be able to, you know, exactly. administer the program. It's like we're just 
And then there's a program that was just funded through the Farm Bill, uh, again, one of these incentive programs for $20 million a year for five years. I mean, so compare $20 million with an M to $70 billion with a B, and again, it's just, you know, we're not even nearing the, the scale and scope of this program. And, and it's, it's really a lost opportunity because you think of, if you think of any large food assistance program, it is really an opportunity to reshape the food system itself. Yeah. And so if you look at WIC, for example, you know, when we started requiring healthier foods to be part of that program, magically retailers started selling healthier foods. You know, I mean, it really can have a a significant market effect. And so if we were to really rethink what food stamps look like, I mean, imagine um, if we emphasize locally grown, organic, fresh fruits and vegetables, really tried to think about how we could help reshape the food system through this hugely influent, potentially influential program, you know, not to mention help people's health in the process. I mean, Mm -hmm. it could really be win-win. Absolutely. And I think that we should look at some of the programs, as you mentioned, like WIC, that has limits on what can be used. You know, if if we have limits for WIC, why don't we have limits for food stamps? Right. Somehow we seem okay with telling mothers how they should eat, but not so much Right. Other people, you know, right. non-mothers or, or, or uh, fathers are okay. And right. you know, it's interesting because children do make up nearly half of all SNAP participants. Mm. And yet, again, double standard for WIC, plus not to mention the school meal program, which, you know, as bad as it is, at least it's supposed to adhere to the dietary guidelines. But right. no such requirement. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say was, can we not use our national dietary guidelines as our umbrella guiding light, as well as a report that doesn't get nearly as much press as I'd like to see, and that's the President's Cancer Panel report on the environment, which said, you know, we really should be choosing fruits and vegetables grown without pesticides and herbicides if we want to reduce cancer risk. So why not fold in these public health food regulations to have a healthier population at the end? I'm with you. Well, Michelle, we've only got a minute or a minute and a half left, and I wanted to make sure you had a chance to bring out anything from the report that I neglected to bring up. Well, I think that what I'd like to emphasize is where how to move forward. So there yes. are a number of recommendations that I made that could actually turn into real policy, and you know, the first being more transparency, right, to really require USDA to collect purchase data and to make all data related to this program public. That's to me, is crucially important. And then there's the issue of of waivers, which is allowing states to experiment with different approaches to, say, not allowing certain purchases, what have you. I mean, there are states that want to do this, but USDA is not allowing it. So we need to get Congress to require USDA to give states more flexibility. And, in fact, Senator Wyden from Oregon attempted to do that with an amendment to the Farm Bill, but that failed. We have another opportunity with the House version hopefully coming up this summer. And so I would like to see some brave congressperson perhaps take up where Senator Wyden's amendment failed. And finally, just more transparency across the board, you know, with the banks, taking a look at can we shave off any of the money that J.P. Morgan's getting and maybe put some of that money back into uh, the mouths of our hungry children. 
Terrific. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Michelle Simon, public health lawyer who has just published a new report, Food Stamps, Follow the Money, Are Corporations Profiting from Hungry Americans? She is president of Eat, Drink, Politics, an industry watchdog consulting firm. She has a master's degree in public health from Yale, received her law degree from the University of California. If you want to learn more about Michelle and her work, please go to eatdrinkpolitics.com. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Michelle, thank you so much for this enlightening work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Melinda. 